that's okay. We're talking about anger. Um, so there's self-centered anger that motivates actions that are hurtful to ourselves or others. We just talked about that one. And life-centered life -centered anger that motivates actions that benefit the well-being of ourselves or others. So first, I want to talk a little bit about the life-centered one because that one is, I think, the one we're, we're less familiar with, but also it um, invites some possibilities around anger. Does anyone remember uh, one of the stories? She, she shares a couple of stories that are examples of life-centered anger. Does anyone remember one of those stories? It's the Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Yeah, 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 that's a great one. Um, anyone remember the ancient one? I love this story. Um, the samurai, he's got a big sword. My husband teaches Tai Chi, he's got these big swords. Um, the samurai wants to understand heaven and hell. You know, he's one of these students like you and me who are like, I gotta understand this. And he goes to the master and the master says, something awful. He says, why should I teach you? You're stupid, your breast smells, your teeth are bad. Just all of these insulting things. And the samurai is enraged. He pulls out his sword. I just imagine his hair kind of flying. And um, the master says, that, what you're experiencing right now, that is hell. And then you may remember the, the other side of the story is that the samurai is so deeply touched that the master has put himself in danger in this way because a samurai is like gonna use their sword. That's what they do. Um, that he's so touched that he puts down the sword and I'm guessing probably bows. And the master says, that's heaven. Um, and so in that teaching, the master is using a great example of life-centered anger, kind of an outrageous example. But the other example that, um, that was given is um, the teacher of, um, what is her name, Diane Rosetto. Um, Joe Gobeck is also, uh, was also the teacher of um, Peg Syverson, and um, therefore um, a teacher, a root teacher for our Sangha. And so um, I didn't meet Joe Gobeck. She was quite elderly um, when I came to Apamata, but I'm guessing she was a woman about my size um, she doesn't look that big in her photos, and she was already elderly, maybe in her 70s, maybe 60s. And uh, Rosetto um, relates a story that the Joko Beck is walking on the beach, and she like breaks up this fight between these guys um, with her anger. And so, anger's not in itself bad. So switching now to self-centered anger which I think is the one that really can trip us up. Um, Rosetto also shares some stories about self-centered anger. Does anyone re remember any of those stories? There's a really outrageous one. The guy who's told your wife is having an affair. Do you remember that one? And he climbs up in the tree and he's like, I'm gonna get her. I'm going to get her. I'm going to find her. I'm going to catch her in the act. And then, you know, he gets sleepy because, you know, a tree, sleeping in a tree, falls out, makes a fool of himself. And the neighbor says, what are you doing? And the guy says, oh, my wife, she's cheating on me. 
I'm watching out for her. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so mad. And what is what does the neighbor say? Somebody tell the punchline. You're not even married. You're not married. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a ridiculous story, right? But who can identify with that? Where you get so far down the line of your anger and then suddenly something wakes you up to realize this is a complete waste of time. Like what, what did I just do? What, what is this cotton candy story that I have just woven? Um, so um, a good chuckle from that one, but a bit, bit of self-identification as well. I think it also points to that this um, self-centered anger can also be really tied to our identity. Um, someone mentioned how hard it is to let go of anger from the past, anger about past wrongs. Um, and Rosetto uses the word self-indulgent anger. Um, yikes. Um, which then brings up the question of what beliefs we bring about anger. You know, when we think of other emotions like joy, um, you know, we may have some thoughts about joy, um, but anger seems to come with a lot of self stories like self-judgment. So for example, um, what I shared that you just shouldn't be angry. Does anyone else have ideas having read this chapter or kind of practice with anger, things you've noticed that are beliefs about anger, not about a particular situation, but just about being angry? Beliefs, judgments, messages, whether you still believe them or not. Things you've heard. Yeah. I grew up with my mother always saying, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And that, that really, I mean, it's like, okay, it's not okay to get angry. It's not okay to get mad, or at least it's not okay to express them. Right. It's not okay to express them because you're still going to have the feeling, but you just need to stay quiet. So I think that belief is something like, um, anger isn't welcome here. I had a, I had a situation growing up where one of my parents um, would would actually like try to make me angry right like like mm. uh, bully and tease and mock and uh, until I was so angry I would just like cry and then they would say oh you know it's what do you what do you don't be so silly right why are you why are you so upset I was only kidding or you know this is you're taking it too seriously or you need to learn to control yourself and so I I guess I grew up feeling like um like anger was weakness on my part and so I spent a lot of years trying to avoid getting angry. And like you, Robin, that didn't work at all <laughs> because basically I was still angry and then it would just all come out at once. And then it was really, really damaging. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of times we get the message that it's kind of ironic because anger is so big and scary when it's aimed at you but that expressing anger is weakness and it's showing a lack of control, which also is a kind of moral weakness. Um, 
what about, um, oh, does anyone have any beliefs that they may have heard, had, or still have around um, what happens if you don't express anger? Well, um, I mean, I, uh, as a therapist, it's very connected to depression. Mm. Um, it's, it's a absolute root, uh, R O O T, um, you know, keeping it in, um, and vice versa, allowing oneself to, um, acknowledge, you know, I'm really angry. I might feel murderous or whatever it is. Um, relieves depression also um and also um convincing patients that it's a feeling and not an action um is is something else that you know i've always tried to help with and um i think um there are different um uh in society i think it's different men and women are treated differently um with their anger um men men who are angry are often considered powerful and um women are considered complainers you know and bitches basically right right and um thank you for um you know the in in my notes from the book um someone one of the students says something like um you know if you don't express your anger it you know it erodes your insides and some people will say um oh you know there's a whole camp of people out there somewhere who are like, oh, you have cancer because you have unexpressed anger. But I did not, I, I think maybe I vaguely knew that that was a root cause of depression, but that's fascinating and it makes perfect sense because they- Yeah, well, what what happens is the, the anger, um, it's got to go somewhere and it, right. it's like a boomerang, it comes back to the cell. Right. So, so we know that based on what we've talked about, that we want to move through anger. And as the precept is stated, we want to let go of anger. And I know for myself, when I feel angry, I want to let go of it now. And I want someone to kind of do it for me. Like I just want it taken away. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be with you in just a sec, um, Heather. And so uh, Rosetto tells this wonderful story about which I, I could really identify with of um a student going to a teacher and saying I, i'm an angry person i want to get rid of my anger you can really imagine this you know that that kind of um humble understanding of oneself and clarity that this needs to change and the teacher says um okay well show me your anger and the student being with the teacher of course um doesn't feel angry right then which does seem to be the way anger is you know it's either there or it's not there's not like a an in-between place and it's hard to call it up when you're not experiencing it and when you are experiencing it it's hard to let go of it um so the student says um i i can't find it um and then of course the teacher says well <laughs> it's gone you're good um i'm glad i could help you um and I think it, that story points to me to um, how desperate we are to work through our anger and how painful it is to hold our anger. And yet, like 
everything, it's temporary, like all emotions. So, um, Heather, I um, can we come back to you now? Sure, I was curious about the link between anger and depression. And I had an experience recently where I was just enraged about something. And while expressing my anger, I sort of evolved into tears. And, and I was surprised. And of course, you know, I was verbalizing and I'm, I'm so angry about the situation. And clearly I was sad about it. Um, probably because I had some insight into the behavior for some time or the situation that um, I was unwilling to accept or address for what it was. But I was, I'm also curious from a spiritual perspective and a therapeutic perspective, why do we confuse anger with grief? Well, I think Rosemary can speak to the psychological perspective. Um, maybe if, if you want to do that first, Rosemary, just briefly. Sure. Um, yeah, so um, a lot of times um, angry expression is covering sadness. So, yeah, so people that, that tend to, um, that's like their go-to feeling about a lot of things and reactions with people, it's covering a lot of sadness. So I don't know if that's helpful. But. And I think, I think where the spiritual comes in, this practice, is being able to, you know, in the moment, we kind of um, hope that our practice sort of um, kicks in. And what I think of as our body memory um, either helps hold us, you know, in a grounded way or minimize how much we express or cause harm. But after the event, regardless of the you know, the extent to which we were successful in, in mitigating harm to others and ourselves, um, to be able to, even as painful as it is, because it is, it's over, let's just leave it behind. There is a way that it's helpful to, to review either writing in a journal or while you're sitting at, on the meditation cushion, knowing that you've got a limited amount of time, you don't have to stay here forever, um, to kind of look at um, as it sounds like you already are, like realizing, oh, that actually, that was sadness. And that like actually kind of relates for me to this other thing. And then to be able to get an understanding about um, kind of causes and conditions that led to what initially was anger, but then became sadness. Um, I think that's where this practice is. And then I'm curious if you found that once you recognized that your truer emotion maybe was sadness, grief, if the anger, since this precept is about letting go of anger, if the anger let you go. Yes, it was, it was reduced considerably. I still have some vestiges, but yeah. And so not, I'm not ruminating. Right. And so um, I think that's maybe one thing that's interesting is, um, you know, the, the precept is worded um, the way of letting go of anger, but sometimes it is the way of anger letting us go by 
you know, by sitting with it, by examining it, by noticing it. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, also, I wanted to just call out that anger um, also, um, I think Rosemarie, Kimmer, if it was you or not, mentioned, um, you know, relationship between anger and gender in um, our culture. Um, there is also a relationship between race and anger. And um, I have a dear friend who is a black woman and the number of times she's been called an angry black woman and that she's asked me because she believes this label. Am I, am I an angry black woman? And I'm like, you don't understand when people call you that, they just want you to be quiet. <laughs> you know, um, it is um, a way to um, silence someone with that label. Um, but moving along, the most interesting part of this chapter to me is sort of um, a good example of burying the lead. Um, the question to ask when we're angry, what is the requirement that I have that is not being met? Did you guys notice that question? How do I think it, things, ought to be? I'm curious, especially anyone who hasn't shared yet, you don't have to take like the worst thing that ever made you angry. Just could be a simple, silly thing. Um, can can you walk us through an example of that? You know, someone cuts you off on Mopac, or you know, your coworker sends one too many emails, or uh, I had one today where I met a friend for dinner, and uh, we went from the park we were at across the street to a place for dinner. And um, both got out of our cars at the same time. And then I waited at the front door of the restaurant for about a solid four or five minutes while she got all of her stuff situated on her front seat and did, I don't know, whatever she was doing for quite a long time. <laughs> and I found myself just getting a little more irritable and a little more angry and uh, I found myself thinking, you know, I require everybody to move as quickly as I do. Right, right. right. This is, it's the way life should be, and that's it. Right? Yeah, I mean, there's an amount of time it takes to get out of a car. Right. And that's, it just, there's not more to it. This is not the time to check your email, do your lipstick, to, you know, do your hair, whatever. Um, yeah, that's a perfect example. Robert, yeah. I know you, I know you want to get to your, to the meditation, but, um, I've got an interesting example that actually involves you that wow. I've not talked to you about this. It's just something I noticed one time during one of the morning sits quite a while ago now, uh, sometime last year, um, somebody, um, I won't name names, but it was a he, um, and he was into this whole thing about smiling. And he's looking at a screen full of mostly women and he says that we all ought to smile. Mm -hmm. And okay, so see, I'm see, I see Rosemary, she's gritting her teeth. So there's this thing, maybe, maybe everybody on this screen doesn't know. You don't tell a woman to smile. It's it's just, it's anyway. So I'm my anger, and so so my question, so here's how you handled it. It was so beautiful. I can't believe how you handled it. You there was a little pause. 
And then you made this beautiful statement about how, you know, sometimes when you ask some people to smile, they may be offended or something. Whatever you said, it was like so smooth, no one even noticed it. But I'm sitting here in my anger thinking, wow, she either didn't feel the anger or she just handled it beautifully. So, so, so I guess, I guess since that's not really my example so much as yours, um, it, but it's the idea of this running thing, this the, the tiny thing here, tiny thing there. What is my expectation? Like, like, like Todd wanted people to be faster. Well, I want people to recognize me as an equal. And how do you how do you work with that sort of simmering thing that's constantly going on? I'm sure you're black friend feels it too in double. She's, she's got the double whammy there. Yeah, well, that's a great segue. I will say, thank you for, I had completely forgotten that, but once you said smiling, man, that is a hot button issue for me. You don't tell me to smile. Um, but- uh, I, didn't, I didn't know this was a thing. Oh, so many men as, told me. As a, man, as a man, I guess I didn't know this was a thing. So it's, oh. it's men telling women how they should look and act basically. No, it's it's men telling women they need to smile so that they don't feel um, they don't. Well, it goes along with anger, I guess. They don't want to feel threatened in any way. They want this woman to kind of be, you know, dancing backwards in high heels and and just and not be strong. Dazzle, dazzle. Yeah, and it fits into what Leslie heard as a as a girl of you know if you don't have anything nice to say, um, so smile. Um, but let's not get off track. But I was um, I was not angry in that moment. But um, thank you for um, that feedback. I do appreciate it. Um, but what I'd like to do now is actually you've asked a good practice question. Um, you know, I have this anger. It is related to my expectations around this thing. People taking this amount of time um, uh, and respecting my time. Um, people um, treating me respectfully, and you guys can fill in, you know, your own personal blank. Um, so I will invite you in just a moment to um, think of a particular example of a situation that um, brought you anger. And um, again, it needn't be, um, you know, the core issue of your childhood. Um, that might be a bit much for this exercise. But I do encourage you to use it um, if it works for you um, in the future. So I invite you to um, return to your sort of meditation seat. If you need to rearrange yourself a little bit, we'll just be here like 10 minutes. But anyway, a seat where you feel grounded, well supported, upright. And when you find that comfort, um, go ahead and either close your eyes or drop your gaze. If you'd like for this exercise, you can um, turn your camera off if that makes you feel more comfortable. But I do love your presence. So Thich Nhat Hanh said that when someone says or does something that makes us angry, we suffer. In the moment of anger, it's hard to see that because we feel so justified in our anger. But we as the angry one, we too are suffering. Um, we tend to say or do something back to make the other suffer, he says, with the hope that then we will suffer less. 
The fact is that when you make the other suffer, he or she will try to find relief by making you suffer more. And so there is escalation of suffering on both sides. And here's where he really makes a turn. Both of you need compassion and help. Neither of you needs punishment, neither the angry one or the one who has caused the anger. And Thich Han likens tending to anger, which we're going to do now, to tending to a crying baby. So with that same kind of care and concern, patience, and lack of judgment, you know, we don't judge a baby who's crying. We want to just find out what's, what's the trouble and comfort the baby. And then finally, Thich Nhat Hanh says that working with anger is like boiling potatoes. It takes as long as it takes. You can't rush it. So now that you're sitting in this um, upright meditation position, first notice sensations in your body, your breath, where your body touches the cushion beneath you, any places of constriction or pain. places of spaciousness and places that are just difficult to locate that kind of feel like nothing. I invite you now to bring to mind someone you love. In this way, we will take care of ourselves before we meet our anger. Thinking of someone you love could be a child, your partner, a friend, someone who's deceased, or an animal companion. Imagine this loved one right here before you. Really feel the love for this other. Notice any changes that happen in your body. Maybe just the beginning of a smile or some warmth in your chest or some other sensation. Know that at any time you can return to this peaceful sensation and the presence of this loved one. Now, bring to mind a person or situation that evokes anger in you. It could be something that happened long ago or something from earlier today. Take a moment to gather up some energy around this angry situation. And now, say to yourself, and if you like, because we're all on mute, you can say it aloud. Hello, little anger. Hello. 
as if you were greeting a friend or a small child. And we'll repeat this, breathing in, hello little anger, breathing out, you are welcome here. Breathing in, hello, breathing out, welcome. Continuing for eight breaths on your own. Now let go of the counting and be curious. What does your anger look like? Is it big? Is it tiny? What color is it? What does your anger need from you right now? Does it want you to know something? Does your anger request any small movement from you that you can do right now without disturbing others? What does the crying baby of your anger need? How can you care for it right now? Ask your anger if there is anything else it needs from you. Now, bring your awareness back to your breath. Observe the sensations in your body. Note any changes. When you're ready, begin to move your hands and your fingers. Maybe rotate your ankles. Stretch in any way that feels good. Take your time and when you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes.
to end on this topic, um, we'll check with Todd to see if we can, if we have time for sharing. But my last um, sort of um, thing to offer is one version of the precepts that I've used um, actually instead of saying the way I take up the way of letting go of anger, it talks about transforming anger. And I found that very helpful. And Heather, what you shared, you know, resonates with that idea that anger is a kind of energy and our practice allows it to allows us to transform it. And I might even reword that to say our practice is a lot allows anger to transform itself because we stop doing something and the anger changes. But it seems that as long as we're invested in being angry, then we can't transform it and we can't let it go either. And so um, I offer that, the idea of the practice of transforming anger. Anger will happen. And our practice allows us to transform anger. Or allow for it to be transformed. That's what I have to offer this evening. Um, Todd, I'm going to let you be the keeper of time. Yeah, we have plenty of time. So if anybody wants to uh, bring any questions up or reflections or concerns, we have time. Good. I'm curious um, how that exercise was, the hello little anger thing. Um, did you find it useful? Was there something surprising? Did you find it, that you resisted it? What was, um, what are some of your experiences? Well, Robin, I thought it was really helpful, actually. I hadn't ever approached my anger that way. And uh, my anger looked like me <laughs> as a small child. Uh, and when you ask the question, uh, what, what, what is the your requirement that's not being net, met? And then while engaging with the anger, you asked us to, to ask our anger if there was anything more we could do for it. Uh, it was um, it was very almost immediate sense of relief um, because I think it, just in my case, there's so much shame around anger that the the just being able to acknowledge it <laughs> it sounds very silly but the, just being able to say this is legit you're allowed to be angry um was kind of kind of great i think it's huge i don't i don't think you should minimize that at all because um i think so much in the way that leslie you know what 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 many of us were taught of just don't you're not going to be angry you know, anger is not good, you're not going to do that. And so to be able to stop because of our practice enough, stop doing all the things, thinking all the things, planning all the things, to be able to encounter 
something that is really forbidden for, especially I would say women, but I have not ever been a man. Um, it's pretty profound, so thank you. I felt it was extremely helpful as well. Mm. Really transformative. I know that when I um, was struggling a few years ago and encountered this, um, this is from a particular Thich Nhat Hanh book. Let me tell you the title of it. It is um, Anger, Wisdom for Cooling the Flames. And the whole book is in his really precious tone. I think only he could say hello, little anger without um, me completely just not agreeing with that. Um, but when I when I worked with it um, so strangely, uh, the image that came, my anger was a red cat, this really electric red cat. And I was to brush it, I think, and huge gobs of hair came out. And it was a situation in which there was nothing for me to do about this anger, like there was no, no action to take that would, um, you know, improve things, which I think is often the case with anger. Um, we have an expectation, it's not met, but there's nothing we can do about it. Um, there was something very um, uh, oddly uh, helpful to be able to, when I was revisiting and re-experiencing that anger, which took as long as it takes, just like the boiled potatoes, um, to have this sort of mental exercise to do, that I had this enormous red cat to brush. Um, in I remember sharing this with someone, and she immediately had this tremendous pile of stones, and she just needed to move the stones, but they were little stones, and she didn't have to do it all at once. So um, our imaginations come into play when we can uh, somehow drop all these stories about anger in particular, that it's bad or wrong or um, forbidden or it's dangerous. Um, it's overwhelming to be able to engage the power of our imagination in a in a way that's turning towards because of that question what do you need um, I'm curious as you guys continue to work with it if it's helpful for you Before uh, we turn it over to Todd, I'm curious to hear from one of the guys, because I do think that anger, um, unlike some of these other precepts, maybe all of them, um, anger is um, gendered in our society. Um, often, I know um, therapists will say that, um, you know, women turn trauma inwards and it's depression, men turn it outwards and it's violent behavior. Um, and so, that is kind of a socially condoned and maybe also is hormonal. Um, but we've heard a lot from women, so I want to balance that from hearing from some of you guys. 
for me, it I think it's all maybe I was different because I was brought up with a lot of a lot of girls. All my cousins were were girls, but it was like you didn't want to express anger. And, and in my immediate family, my parents would just if if you could tell if they got angry, they would instead of saying anything or doing anything, they just go in separate rooms and just internalize it. But I think for me, and I'm trying to deal with how to, how to best deal with, with anger when it comes up, a lot of times it's just foolish stuff, it's dropping something or uh, hitting myself or, you know, by accident or something. And immediately it's, it's like anger or rage even. I don't want to strike out at anyone, but sometimes I, I just think I would be better off just yelling. And I'm not sure if, if that's healthy or not healthy. Uh, so, you know, for me, it's like, well, if I yell, I'm getting rid of it and I'm not holding it in and it's not, I'm not building up the, the tension in my head. Uh, but then, you know, it comes down to, well, uh, you know, it's like so, sometimes you may want to, you know, may want, you know, may want to cry about something, but of course, boys don't cry. Mm. Uh, you know, you're raised boys, you, know, you can't cry. So what do you, you know, so you can get angry, I guess, but you can't cry. But uh, yeah, you know, then I go, well, maybe I can cry or 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 yell and just get get rid of it. I don't, I don't know. I'm I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah, join the club on that one. Um, I know that sometimes for me, I feel like my brain can only in the moment of a situation arising. Um, apparently one's executive function does go offline, so I'm not alone, but I feel like I can only hold like a little tiny bit of wisdom. And I think the two tiny bits of wisdom that are huge, that both of which just continue to shock me with their profoundness in Buddhism. Here they are. Um, just, just don't cause more harm. Like no harm. The most basic thing that we're doing here is to not, there's always gonna be harm and suffering around us, but to not contribute to it, to not add more of it. So it might be that when you trip over that thing that hangs out from the end of your bed that we all trip over and it hurts like hell and you want to just yell, if you're home alone, yell. <laughs> um, and if there's someone else in the house that could be harmed by your unexplained yelling, um, then probably another choice. Um, the other piece of wisdom that doesn't relate Oh, no, it totally relates to anger because um, we just did it is um, be curious or not knowing mind, but be curious is kind of a more English way to say it. So don't cause harm. Be curious. I also have a related question. Sometimes I feel as though I need to discharge anger physically, like with exercise. Is this common or effective? <laughs> 
Well, for sure. And this is off of, out, we're out of precept land. Um, there's no doubt that um, any kind of um, movement, um, especially bilateral movement, is really helpful to discharge any kind of large emotions, whether it's sadness or anger. Um, so walking, you know, I used to think it had to be something violent, like hitting pillows or something. But um, there's a wonderful book, I don't have it in this room with me right now, called Burnout. The, the, it's by two sisters. Um, it came out in the last couple of years. Um, and about the idea of um, how important it is to um, discharge emotion. Um, and um, they speak to specifically bilateral movement, movement that involves both sides of the body. So swimming, walking, running, bicycling, drumming, um, knitting, um, probably there are a thousand other activities. But it doesn't need to be, um, from what I've read, it doesn't need to be something violent. You don't have to throw, you don't have to throw dishes or, um, uh, that would have been news to my mother, um, or, um, you know, hit pillows. It, it needn't, it's just discharging it in some way. It needn't be a obviously angry way. Does that make sense? Dancing. And I think um, that's where taking a moment of stillness and checking in with the body. Sometimes we've been raised to be afraid of our bodies or not trust our body. Like we're supposed to trust our, our thoughts, but not our body. And with anger, um, boy, our thoughts can really get going, right? Just start that story going about what we're going to do and what happened and how much, you know, whatever. Um, and so being able to just take a moment and stop and check in with the body enough to know, oh, I need to go for a walk. I need to dance to a loud song. Um, you know, whatever your thing is. So there is taking up the way of letting go of anger. And remember, please, Thich Nhat Hanh's wonderful metaphor, because I can tell that there's a part of all of us that's like, oh man, I'm going to get this one figured out. I'm going to nail it. And it takes as long as it takes. Thank you so much, Robin. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. That was great. I appreciate it. So that is letting go of anger. <clears throat> the other thing we had a kind of on our, our syllabus, our extra credit syllabus, is for those that are uh, still trying to make their way through the Dale Wright book, is we were on chapter five, or the perfection of meditation. I know we don't often get to that book in this class. We usually we focus on Rosetto and some of the other practices, but, and I'm not going to cover it here. I think, I think it'd be good to end early for once. I always have that goal and never do it. So we'll end early here in a minute or two, but I'll give you a little bit of the book, just as some encouragement, if, if you have time to go back and, and look it over at some point during this month. So as a review, the six perfections, or Buddhism and the cultivation of character, uh, really looks at 
how the Buddhist approach is to realize your freedom and liberation and that life can be you know, done haphazardly or it can be taken on deliberately. And Buddhists recognize that there's a difference between those who embark on self-cultivation and those who don't. And that that difference is sizable, it's enormous. It's the difference between enlightened ways of being in the world and unenlightened ways. So the perfections are put forward or understood as particular ideals of human character. And when the Buddha was asked, how many bases of training are there for seeking enlightenment? He responded, six, generosity, morality, tolerance, energy, meditation, and wisdom. So there are six series of practices or trainings directing one toward enlightenment. So this is my really quick review of where the leading up into the book. But they're, they're, they're also both the method and the goal. You know, generosity is a training. It's also seen as a goal or an endpoint or a fruit of character development. There's a, a saying in the book that enlightenment just is the path and the path is enlightenment. Or one minute of sitting, one minute of being a Buddha. That's something else that's often, you'll often hear. So these, these uh, paramitas or perfections, although that's not a great translation, translation uh, are dimensions of human character uh, most important to enlightenment. So that's, that's the uh, leading up here to chapter five. So in the first chapters, they've covered generosity, morality, tolerance, energy. And then the fifth is meditation, the perfection of meditation. And the reason I covered, you know, kind of the quick review is because often meditation looks different than the other perfections. Um, generosity, morality, patience, these all are tolerance. These all seem like <clears throat> character traits. But meditation, we think of as an activity, not a character trait. But the sneaky thing is that being meditative, in other words, someone who's thoughtful, contemplative, imaginative, and calm, being meditative is to, is to possess a set of personal qualities or traits of character. And just like the other perfections, it uh, can be cultivated through the practice of meditation. So again, each of these perfections are a characteristic or quality of an enlightened person, as well as a specifically designed practice meant to engender that quality. So meditation is a practice that cultivates a meditative approach to life, one that's thoughtful, contemplative, calm, and imaginative. And as the fifth one, this comes after energy, um, because in the teachings, they recognize that it takes energy and will to, quote, harness the mind with applied mindfulness. 
It takes energy and will to harness the mind with applied mindfulness. So meditation follows energy as the fifth and is closely linked to it. And in the book, he goes through the two kind of traditionally uh, types of meditative practices. Um, uh, the two most common you'll hear is shamatha, vipassana. So shamatha is a, a concentrative practice. Think of uh, early beginners practices of following the breath or counting the breath. There are practices, meditation practices that are designed to um, train your mind to concentrate into kind of a single pointed focus on something, right? To be able to, this is the be training to be able to come back, to keep coming back over and over and see what we're doing. <clears throat> and these shamatha practices will result in, in what Buddhists call samadhi or a concentrative state. And there can be many different teachings on levels and types of samadhi that you might hear. And then the other is vipassana or insight. So we have concentration and we have insight. And they are um, thought of as two wings of the same bird. It takes both to fly. They help and support each other. And kind of in my thinking, I kind of think of them as they're both co-requisites for each other. <clears throat> they go hand in hand. And then uh, Dale Wright goes into kind of the three layers of human awareness or con consciousness that are seen as kind of um, three different perspectives of consciousness, which sometimes people try and put it in hierarchical order, um, but they are, they're all required. One, the first one is direct awareness um, or basic awareness of our senses, hearing a sound, seeing a sight, you know, feeling the cushion on your bottom, kind of direct sensory awareness. And we often start practitioners here um, because uh, our natural human tendency is not to be in this layer of consciousness. We're normally in the second layer, which is reflective thinking, thinking about our situation or our predicament, um, thinking about the person next to us and why are they so loud? You're not just hearing the sound, you're, you're reflecting on the sound and why are they moving? And you know, aren't we told to sit still? And, geez, this sounds just like that other person at the last or two last year who was always, you know, chewing their gum or, you know, you're, so you're often, you're reflecting about all of the input that's coming into you. So this second layer is where we normally spend a lot of our human energy and time. And so in Buddhism, we often bring people back to training and direct awareness to try and exercise that muscle to get us out of just reflective thinking all the time. So direct awareness is one and then reflective thinking is, is the second, and then reflexive consciousness is the third layer, the consciousness that is aware of our own mind, <clears throat> an awareness that we're thinking, an awareness that we're reflective and we're spinning. Um, the issue with this third layer is there's no higher level to be able to step outside of it and observe it, right? Whatever consciousness steps back to observe who is aware is the awareness itself. 
And there's no place you can stand outside of yourself to, to see this fully and directly. So it's a really good chapter on, on meditation, on um, what, the, what the trainings or the perfections of meditation or jhanas are all about. And uh, I think people will find it helpful. So if you have some extra time, this is a good Dale Wright chapter to dig into, chapter five, the perfection of meditation. But with that little tantalizing bit of it, I will leave you to read it on your own if you feel like, and we will end early tonight. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your time and your presence. Uh, we're, we're almost three quarters of the way through the year, if you can believe it already. And pretty soon we'll start talking about um, the precepts um, ceremony for those that might be interested in that and what that means and uh, as we finish out our year. Any final questions or comments before we wrap up? No? Okay, thank you again, Robin, for joining us. It was so good to see you and have your voice here. Thank you. Thank you all for your practice. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Class was so helpful. Good, good.